0: if you could put that first slide up there. Uh, True confession time. This is the first time I've ever used slides that I will refer to in worship while preaching. Usually I'm in a pulpit with a robe, and it's a very different kind of setting. So you're my guinea pigs. Um, You're welcome in advance. Um, When I was in sixth grade, It was the first time I learned in history class in school. I went to a Christian school, and I learned about religious brothers and sisters who we would call nuns or monks and friars, and I remember hearing about the way that they lived together and prayed together, and I thought, how wonderful would it be if I could live a life like that, if I could devote my entire life to serving God in that way, and then I was immediately disappointed because, one, I wasn't Roman Catholic, and two, I wanted to be married, so it didn't really seem like that was in the cards for me. But I did follow God's call on my life, went to seminary, and now in the ordination process. Fast forward to early 2016, I was finishing up um, an interim ministry position, and I was trying to discern what my next step would be, and I got an email Um, I don't know if God has ever spoken to you through an email before, but God spoke to me through an email from one of my besties from seminary, and she sent me an email about this thing called the Community of St. Anselm. And in the body of her email, she wrote, in all caps, this is for you, exclamation point. And she was right, because she knows me. She's my bestie. The Community of St. Anselm, as I would learn, is a one-year experiment in monastic life monastic being the word that we use to describe religious brothers and sisters, nuns and monks and friars. So it's hosted at a place called Lambeth Palace, which is our next slide. And uh, it it actually, that's not where I live. That was just sort of there. I lived adjacent. I lived palace adjacent um, in what used to be the stables. But it's hosted at Lambeth Palace by this guy called the Archbishop of Canterbury. And uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, if you don't know, he's sort of roughly equivalent to the Pope in his leadership of the Church of England. And um, we call him the ABC, Archbishop of Canterbury. Or Justin, if you're on a first-name basis with him like I am. And he, when he became the Archbishop of Canterbury, he had this huge uh, space. He had all this um, sort of empty space for living and praying and and learning, uh, that he thought, let me fill this up with young people, young-ish people, who want to pray, and to serve, and to learn. Um, He has some priorities, and one of those is revival of religious life. And so he thought, here is a perfect opportunity. So he extended the invitation to people from all over the world, ages 20 to 35, to apply. And apply we did, and if we were accepted like I was, to London we went. So he opened up his home to a group of 16 residents and 25 non-residents. The residents came from 13 different countries. So we had people from India, Pakistan, Mexico, the US, South Africa, Zimbabwe, Tunisia, France, Finland, a couple from the UK that were locals, and one from Palestine. We can see our next slide. This is me and the ABC, kind of a big deal. So, the, uh, the non-resident members were people that lived in London already, and they maintained their work life and their family life and commitments, but they joined us once a week, um, one m- weekend a month, and then for a couple of retreats throughout the year. And we have this, um, the service of commitment, which is our, our next slide. Sorry, this is the group of non-residents from all over the world with famous Big Ben behind us. Next slide. This is our service of commitment. This is the resident and non-resident group together. And at this service, we made vows just like religious brothers and sisters make vows. Ours were temporary for one year instead of for our whole life. But we made vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, just like other religious brothers and sisters. But we made vows to work together, to pray together, to live, to laugh, to learn from each other, to accept challenges from each other, and to follow Jesus in ways that we had never done before. Our next slide is a picture of me holding up our cross So our habit that we would wear was this small cross um, that we would wear around our neck. So our days began in silence. We spent a lot of time in silence. Uh, We had silence through breakfast and Bible reading and morning prayer until 10.30. 10.30 we could break our silence. We had silence in the evenings from 5 to 7.30 we had silence on wednesdays we started 2 p.m. i mean sorry 9 p.m. on tuesday until 3 p.m. on wednesday we were in silence other times we were learning and studying we had lectures from all different denominations and all different universities all over the world we were a community that were methodist and anglican and baptist there was a brethren there was a lutheran there were roman catholics there was an orthodox there were people from almost every denomination We did all of our own cooking and cleaning and laundry. We lived at the palace, but we did not have servants. Um, And two days a week, we left the palace walls and endeavored to befriend the poor and served the poor of London two days a week. Now, I couldn't, uh, next slide, please. I could not, this is, We have France, India, Pakistan, US, uh, South Africa represented in this picture. Next slide, please. So this was us at prayer. We prayed three times a day corporately and we prayed other times during the day individually. We could go for a walk, we could go to our room, we could go to the chapel, we could, um, whatever we wanted to do in that individual prayer time, we could, but together corporately We would be in the crypt, um, which is the oldest part of the palace. It had been there for a thousand years. And we would pray morning prayer, midday, we would have a Eucharist service of Holy Communion, and then evening prayer. And I couldn't spend time in London without, as a growing up Methodist, I couldn't spend time in London without having followed in John Wesley's footsteps as best as I could. Next slide, please. Oh, this is us laughing. Next slide, oh, this is an orthodox monastery I visited. Maybe the next slide is John Wesley? No, so never mind. So, but there's a picture of me, there's a picture of me in front of um, various statues of John Wesley all over London, um, sometimes alone, sometimes with my Methodist brethren. Um, But we celebrated holidays together. I cooked a Thanksgiving, along with Team America, cooked a Thanksgiving feast for 25 people, which was a first for me. Um, They all got to taste my Grand cornbread dressing recipe. Um, We spent Christmas together in France at a monastery. We spent Easter together in Canterbury um, with the archbishop and his wife. And one of my favorite memories, a couple, oh, there's John Wesley. There he is. That statue is of John Wesley, and that's me and um, two other, a Methodist from Kentucky and a Methodist from Mexico. Um, And behind that, uh, the building behind uh, the statue there is Wesley's Chapel, where he preached um, and taught when he was in London. And just out of frame on the right-hand side is his home. Next slide, please. There's our Thanksgiving feast. And there's Christmas. There's Easter. We're getting the fast forward. There we go. This is my favorite memory of the whole year. Westminster Abbey. Westminster Abbey is right across from Big Ben and Parliament and it has seen the consecration of um, and consecration and coronation of royalty. Um, Elizabeth I is buried there. Other notable um, scientists and poets and um, important figures are, are buried there. And we had the place all to ourselves one night. One night of worship with the community of St. Anselm. It was just us and God and this beautiful building. Um, that memory is one that was really something to write home about. Um, our, the last one. There we go. So, behind me, I'm really excited in this picture. Behind me in purple is the ABC. And next to him, not looking at the camera, is Pope Francis. So this on Facebook got more likes than any other picture that I've posted. I think the Pope is kind of a popular guy. So I had this completely life-changing, transformative, tearing down and building back up year. And during that year, I felt more connected to myself, to others, and to God than I ever had before. And it was as if I was right in the sweet spot, in the middle of what I was meant to do and who I was meant to be. And then the year ended and I had to come home. I I was dreading it. I actually tried to get the leadership of the community to let me stay an extra year as like a coordinator. I'll be a camp counselor, I'll help the next year. they didn't go for it. Um, In their wisdom, they said, no, you need to go home. The whole purpose of this year was for us, we weren't all ministry types like me. We had engineers and civil servants. We had teachers. We had musicians. We had um, uh, somebody who advised uh, parliament. I mean, amazing, right? And the idea was that we would come and we would have this transformative year, and then we would go back. We would take that transformation with us back to our careers and to our families and to our churches and our communities that we wouldn't keep it to ourselves but that we would share it and as hopeful and beautiful as that sounds I was really really scared because I had made in my mind I had made all this spiritual uh, progress I was afraid that I was going to have made 10 steps forward and that when I went home I would take nine steps back I was worried that my spiritual life might be diminished or even taken away from me. But one of but what I really should have been thinking of and what I realized was that the transformation that I underwent was a gift from God that no one could take from me. And one of the most important lessons I learned from my time in the monastic community was to stop trying to do a bunch of stuff for God to try to impress God or please God, or to try and do something and then maybe have God bless it. What I learned was to stop and look around, see what God is already doing and the ways God is already moving, and to get on board. You have been hearing in this sermon series about God on the move, and I'm here to tell you that God is on the move right here in your own backyard, which rather reminds me of our text for today, Luke chapter 13. We didn't hear the um, the gospel read, did we? Good thing I have a Bible. So, Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, is probably a familiar uh, story for most of us. It's two different vignettes. So, Jesus is telling us, um, giving us a little bit of history, and then he's telling us a story. Verse 1 of chapter 13 reads At the very time there were some present, he told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, You will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it, but found none. So he said to the gardener See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and I still find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? The gardener replied, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So this rather reminds me of our text for today where we have these two different Vignettes. Jesus is telling us the same thing in both of those parts. So, first, Jesus is explaining about some folks who had died as a result of some tragic circumstance beyond their control. And there must have been some kind of pervasive heresy that Jesus was trying to correct and teach against. This heresy must have been that these people suffered the fate that they did because they were sinners. Or they were worse sinners than some other people. And Jesus could not be more clear when he says, no. He says, no, I tell you. He says, unless you repent, you will perish just as they did. Now I'm going to set this aside for just a minute. I'm going to come back to it. Our second scene about the fig tree, it's about a barren fig tree. So it bears no fruit for three years. And the landowner says, it's wasting soil. It needs to be cut down. But the gardener says, let it alone for one more year. And I'll dig around it and put manure on it. Usually when we read this, we read that Jesus is our gardener. So we have people being told to repent or perish. And we see this tree, which is under threat of being cut down, If it doesn't bear fruit. So both of these are Jesus telling all of us to change. To change course. To turn around. To get reconnected with God. Or else we'll be cut down. Or else we'll perish. Now when he says perish, he doesn't mean physical death. And he doesn't mean burning for eternity in hell. Jesus is saying that the way with God is the way that leads to life. And the way without God is the way that leads away from life. We cannot exist. We cannot thrive. We cannot be who God Created and intended for us to be individually and corporately unless we are connected to the Spirit of God. We can read these verses from Luke and we can choose to only read the judgment. And if we do that, we miss half of what God has for us in this passage because all throughout Luke, there is judgment, And there is mercy. They're in balance together. Jesus, in his own words, is refuting this false theology of retribution. That if I do this or don't do that, then I'll lose God's favor. Or worse yet, that God will punish me. Or punish us. And this thinking completely misses the grace and the mercy that is promised to all of us through Jesus Christ. What we are reminded of in these nine verses is that life is fragile and unpredictable and that no tragedy is God's doing. I'm reminded of the plague of gun violence, that leaves so many dead and so many lives destroyed. I'm thinking of the tragic and senseless shooting at the mosque in New Zealand that's been in the headlines recently, and then I think of shootings at synagogues and churches and schools and shopping malls. I think of natural disasters, of war and unrest and all varieties of oppression. Do we really think that the people suffering these fates are more guilty than you or i are they more deserving of a terrible fate jesus says in these verses no no i tell you and i'm comforted by these verses from luke which remind us that none of this is god's doing that none of this is god's plan and none of this exists in god's kingdom The kingdom of God is justice and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Come, Lord, and open in us the gates to your kingdom. The Old Testament lesson that was appointed for today is also a familiar one. It's the story of Moses and the burning bush. And it is as clear an example from Scripture as we can get on how we need to get on board with what God is doing. Moses was hesitant, of course, when God appointed him to take on the task of freeing the people. He thought of all kinds of reasons why he shouldn't be the one to do what God appointed him to do. But when he got on board with what God was doing, instead of trying to figure out a different way or do something and have God bless it, he got on board and the result was was God's liberation of people from the hand of oppression. Moses got on board with God's purposes, and justice was accomplished. And this fig tree in our story reminds me about how we talk about fruit in our lives. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I've had conversations with people who say something like, the fruit of the spirit that I need to work on most is, fill in the blank, patience or self-control. And while it's noble and worthy to want to see those fruits in our lives, they're not something we work on, like studying for a test or when we go to the gym to strengthen our muscles. Fruit is the result of being connected with the spirit of God. In Florida, we have orange trees and the reason we have this like beautiful, juicy orange is because it's connected to the tree and the roots and the ground. It receives nourishment. It's in the right place to get sunlight and water and all of these things are working together so that that orange is what it's created to be. And we are the same way. When we are connected to the Spirit of God, when we're receiving nourishment from the Scriptures, from being in community with other believers around us, when we have all of these things working, then we bear fruit. Then we are who we've been created to and intended to be. And don't forget, if we're not bearing fruit that our gardener Jesus has promised to dig around us and put some manure and to check on us and see if that's made a difference. I was thinking a lot about this gardener and how he's not so quick to give up hope on this barren tree and it made me wonder if there is such a thing as a barren tree Maybe Jesus is so well acquainted with death and resurrection that he knows even a barren tree can turn around and bear fruit. Maybe Jesus let the tree stay because he knows the fruit is there even though it might not be visible to you or I. He sees some potential that we might not. He sees beyond the frustration of the landowner who thinks, why should I leave this barren tree here when there's plenty of other fruit-bearing tree that can benefit from this soil? Maybe Jesus isn't so concerned with what we are able to contribute. Maybe Jesus is merciful to us in part because we are all, every last one of us, created in the image of God and bear that image to the world. Maybe when Jesus looks at us, he doesn't see fruit trees without any fruit, but rather he sees the image of God looking back. When I was at the community of St. Anselm, I spent every Thursday outside the palace walls, serving and charities and, and some of our folks were hospital chaplains and some of our folks served at a homeless shelter and on Thursdays I left and I went to a place called L'Arche. And LARSH is a very, very special place where people with um, intellectual and developmental disabilities and people without disabilities live and work and coexist together. And it's different than maybe some other places you might be familiar with, group homes and institutions, where there are people who give care, and they're up here, and then there are people who receive care, and they're down here, and there's this power dynamic. At Larsh the power dynamic is intentionally flattened. We're all in this together at L'Arche. The base assumption at L'Arche is that every last one of us, whether we have a disability or not, We all have something to contribute, something that's valuable. Because LARSH is a faith-based organization that sees the image of God in every last one of us. So at LARSH, we're working on this task or this project together, and regardless of our disability status, we're all contributing to the success. And I saw this play out in several different ways. Um, In the afternoon, sometimes we would make cards and candles and crafts to sell in their store. And that's the kind of thing that no matter what you contribute, it can be put together and it can look beautiful. There can be some creativity and originality in it. And other times we could bake cookies. And even if you couldn't maybe measure the ingredients, you could stir or you could hold the bowl or you could wipe the counter or you could stand there and cheer on the people who were making the cookies. We could all contribute. But when it came time to start rehearsing for the musical production, I got a little worried. I got concerned especially when Sharon brought out her little keyboard that would sit on her lap. Sharon is probably in her mid-50s, and her entire life she has needed um, care and supervision. She's blind, um, and she's mainly nonverbal. She can communicate a little bit with um, grunts and mumbling, but she's not somebody that our society would look on and say is a, a, contribu- a contributing valuable member. She spends most of her time in the corner away from the group with these like massive um, headphones on, listening to all different kinds of music. Um, and, and then when she brought her little keyboard over, I was ready. I was ready to cheer her on and support her um, when, you know, when she played and maybe it sounded like a, a toddler banging out some, some notes on the keyboard. And she waited until we had listened to the song. I was teaching it. We listened to it one time. We listened to it again and maybe started to sing along. And after that, I heard this beautiful playing. And it was Sharon and she was playing by ear, and she was keeping tempo, and she was even creating these harmonies with the track that was playing and with those of us who were singing. What Sharon contributed to our music together made it so much better. And Sharon is not somebody that our society would look on as a contributing or valuable member. But she is both a gifted musician, self taught, and a beloved child of God. And I'm so grateful for the soil that Sharon's fig tree takes up, it is not wasted. So, we've seen the ways that repentance, how our repentance of getting on board with what God is doing, is vital, not only for our own spiritual formation, but also for the coming of God's kingdom. We pray in the Lord's Prayer that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. The way that happens is for all of us to be the church and to co-participate with what God is doing, where God is moving. And it propels that forward. The the power and um, the love and mercy behind God's kingdom, that's all God. But we are the body of Christ, and we put that into action. So what happened when I got back from England? What happened with all of that dread? Well, a lot of things. I got back from England and Hurricane Irma hit. And so I served the Florida Conference in disaster recovery. And I actually used your church here as a base for um, doing some neighborhood canvassing. Um, my mom died. I discerned a new calling. I started work as a hospice chaplain in Pinellas County. And I'm part of the budding monastic community here in Hillsborough County. We are small, but mighty, and we are desperately trying to follow God's leading. So then the question would follow, how do we go about doing this? Well, the first thing to do is to look around and see the places where God's kingdom is trying to break in And then you all go there and do that. Don't try to start something new. Unless God is really calling you to do that, then do that. But see what's already happening. See the places where God is already moving, where the spirit is already inspiring. See where that train is headed and you hop on board. Another thing that will help us to do that is to pray. And when I say pray, I mean in a disciplined way. If there's one thing I learned in the monastic community, it's the incredible difference that disciplined, scheduled prayer life can make. God is here. God is with you and with us, and God is speaking to us all the time. But we can only hear when we stop and listen. Prayer is mostly listening. It's very little talking on our part. And prayer is one of several spiritual disciplines that if you engage and if you commit, will bring about not only spiritual nourishment for you and for your family, but it will help you see what God is doing. You can discern with the Holy Spirit through these disciplines the direction that God is leading you. And Lent, the season that we're in right now, is the perfect time. I know we're halfway through, but it's never too late. It's never too late to let the season of the church inspire us and propel us to more discipline. If you don't know how to start praying, let me offer you a very easy way to begin. There's an ancient prayer of the church called the Jesus Prayer, and it's, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You can shorten it to, Lord, have mercy. And never stop praying it. Just start praying it and never stop. It can be on like a track that repeats in your head all the time. Just continually pray it. And when we say mercy, we're not saying, oh, I'm such a terrible sinner. Please, God, don't smite me. <laughs> what we're saying is, God, I'm human and I'm limited, and I cannot fathom or grasp or understand your vast." enormous love for me. Please help me. Please help me understand. Please help me embrace your love for me. That's what we're praying when we pray, Lord, have mercy. And I'll submit to you that that's what I pray for people when I don't know what their prayer request is, or I don't know what their particular struggle is. I pray this prayer for them because it covers everything. God be with Susie and help her understand your great, enormous love for her. Whatever Susie's going through, that, that covers it. So John Wesley, the guy from the statue, the founder of the Methodist movement, had a series of questions that he and his holy club asked each other, and they are great discipline to start. They're questions like, was Christ real to me today? Did the Bible live in me today? Did I pray about the money I spent? That's the toughest one for me. These are good self-examination questions. Get in a group and ask them. Ask them of yourself and of your spouse and of your family. Brothers and sisters in grace community, our gracious and merciful and loving God is on the move, moving hearts and minds and whole communities right here in our own backyard and my question for you is are you going to dig your heels in are you going to stay put or will you go with God will you get on board with what God is doing we are going to close with a prayer the prayer of saint anselm please pray this together with me oh my god teach my heart where and how to seek you where and how to find you you are my god and you are my all and i have never seen you you have made me and remade me you have bestowed on me all the good things i possess still i do not know you I have not yet done that for which I was made. Teach me to seek you. I cannot seek you unless you teach me or find you unless you show yourself to me. Let me seek you in my desire. Let me desire you in my seeking. Let me find you by loving you. Let me love you when I find you. Amen.